Exodus 23, and reading from verses 27 through the end of the chapter. God tells Israel, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come, and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, uh, Philistia, and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our glory to continue to worship you, to uh, seek to understand, and to seek to obey your word. And I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would take this scripture and uh, would quicken it to each one of our hearts. We love you and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There's a, but she doesn't tend to live by faith. She tends to live by Murphy's laws. If uh, something could go wrong, she just knows it's going to happen. If she gets a little pain in her side, she's just convinced she's got cancer. Uh, if uh, somebody comes home late, uh, she is convinced they've died in a car accident because otherwise, why wouldn't they call home? And uh, not to pick on ladies, but there's a, a lady in Omaha who just drives me crazy because she's always seeing everything as a sign of the times that it's the end of history, you know? Tornado. Oh, yeah, it's a sign of the times. And uh, she looks at these shootings in the schools and the politics and uh, the wars and different things. And doesn't the Bible say there's going to be wars and rumors and roars? And so everything points to the fact that it's hopeless and it's about the end of history uh, in her views. Well, enough of pointing uh, fingers at women. I find it easy to fall into this Murphy's Law approach to life. How many times have I said, when it rains, it pours? It's just kind of a negative outlook on life. Uh, Irma Bombeck has her own versions of uh, the Murphy's Laws. Uh, she says, when you drop anything in the bathroom, it's going to land in the toilet. <laughs> and uh, we tend to look this way. And actually, uh, statistically, I believe that Murphy's Laws do work for those who do not live by faith. I really do think they work. For those who do not live by faith, but the point is we are called to live by faith. What's happening when we expect the worst in our families and we expect the worst in our church, we expect the worst in our society is that we're looking at life through manure speckled glasses and all of life stinks and it's cloudy, right? Uh, Joel's been very good for me in terms of helping me to recognize some of these Murphy's Laws that still cling. I, I'm getting pretty good at putting those things off, uh, but uh, he's, he's been a reminder to me that we cannot make these negative affirmations. When we make these kinds of affirmations, they kill our faith. Now, here's the thing. God loves to answer 
the, 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 the faithful claiming of the promises of God. He loves to answer those things uh, because he's a God who always respects faith. Well, he's the guy who engenders, he's the one who engenders faith in us anyway, isn't he? And so when we go around mumbling Murphy's laws all day, they're going to happen in your life. If you go around claiming the promises of God throughout the day by faith, God in his good timing will begin to uh, cause those things to, to happen in your life. Jesus said, according to your faith, be it to you. And thankfulness, by the way, is one of the best ways that you can exhibit your faith. Before anything good has even happened, you're thanking God that He is a God true to His promises. He is a God who cannot lie, and you're banking on those promises. And everybody's looking at you strangely. But yes, you stand by faith in the promises of God. Thanksgiving is a powerful, powerful expression of faith. And today we're going to be looking at seven reasons to be thankful. These are all boosters of our faith. There's a lot of bad stuff that's been happening But verse 27 gives the first reason that we can be thankful. It assumes that humanism will always be self-defeating. Let's look at verse 27. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Now, this verse outlines three ways in which humanism is self-defeating. And the first one is psychological. He says, I will send my fear before you. Now, it is true that humanism can be very arrogant, very self-confident, and uh, very cocky when there's no real confrontation that's going on. But when a Cain sees the full-orbed faith of an Abel, it makes him insecure. When, when, when the, the leaders of the government of Persia saw the wisdom that was in Daniel, it made them feel insecure. They wanted him thrown to the lions, right? We've been looking in this history series in the, the, the life of, of Saul and David that when King Saul saw the consistent Christianity of David, saw his boldness, his wisdom, his faith, it made him insecure. He goes after uh, David. And... Um, that, despite the fact that these consistent believers were a minority at that period in history. I mean, why would they be going after a minority? I mean, why would they feel intimidated? You know, it really didn't matter how much the early Christians protested to Rome. We're faithful citizens. We're loyal citizens. It didn't seem to matter. Rome felt threatened by Christianity and did everything they could to destroy Christianity. And the question is, why? I believe it was because Satan was behind them, and intuitively these guys recognized that Christianity was in bold competition with Rome. Uh, They recognized that Christ was calling for total conquest, that he claimed all authority in heaven and on earth, that he was demanding total submission of citizens as well as kings, and they felt threatened. They did not have the confidence to say, oh, just another idea out there. We're going to compete in the free market of ideas. No, the humanists don't like to compete in the free market of ideas. This is one of the reasons why there's no free press in China, right? They don't want the free market out there. People might get some ideas that might be threatening to them, right? 
This is one of the reasons why universities all over this nation will not allow anybody to even mention six-day creationism or any of the other politically correct ideas uh, that we hold to because they feel threatened. Why would they feel threatened if there's not truth? You know, if it's not true, why can't they have a free market of ideas? This is one of the reasons why we're having this web neutrality um, uh, law that, in fact, is supposed to be implemented today. It was the 20th that that was supposed to, uh, to happen. So if you start seeing weird things happening on the net, uh, no surprises. This is not net neutrality. They've got all the, the rights in the world to have their liberal agendas on the, on, the, uh, on the internet, but they're trying to squash the free market of ideas because they feel threatened by the ideas that flow uh, from Christianity. And so it, it, it's kind of a, a fear that they are experiencing. You might say, why is this uh, something to be thankful for? Because they're opposing us. This is something to be pessimistic about, isn't it? Well, yeah, they're opposing us, but why are they opposing us? They feel threatened. They intuitively know they are no match for the Lord. And there are liberal organizations all over America that feel that we are dangerous. We are a threat to them. And we really are, (laughs) if God is with us. Because God says, I will send my fear before you. It ought to give us faith. When the American Humanist Association says that a Reformed Reconstructionists, which is uh, what I am anyway, they say they are the most consistent Christians, the most self-conscious Christians, the most dangerous Christians, you ought to take it as a compliment. Thank you, Lord. They're intimidated, right? These are things for which we can thank the Lord. Okay, the next phrase gives the second reason why all humanism is self-defeating. It says, I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. And I want you to notice it says, among all the people to whom you come. Now, there's various ways in which God has historically sent confusion. One of the ways was to send various languages at the Tower of Babel, right? And uh, to this day, God has used language differences and ethnicity differences to keep, for example, the United Nations from making a one-world government. Are they really as much of a threat as Christians make them out to be? Well, they are a threat, but not to a full-orbed Christianity. I mean, if they can't even deal with Iran and Iraq, how in the world are they going to stop the Great Commission? They cannot. They cannot. And so there is this... um, This whole thing uh, that God can send confusion in various ways. Here's another way. It could be confusion of God's enemies fighting against each other or at least getting in each other's way. This happened to coalition after coalition in the Old Testament that came against Israel. They started fighting with each other. They got in each other's way. I mean, it gratifies my heart when a Congress gets shut down on a bill against pro-lifers because homosexuals are afraid that same law might be used against them. You know, when you got this infighting in the Obama administration, it's God sending confusion. We have everything to thank the Lord for and praise the Lord for. Uh, It can be a confusion of not knowing how to proceed. And we do suffer in the process. There's no doubt about that. But you know what? We need to suffer as a church. God is even using this to wake up the church of Jesus Christ. But when humanists can't figure out how to solve the global financial crisis, don't see God up there wringing his hands, man, this just isn't working out well. No, he's sending confusion, right? He's the one who's causing these things to happen. How many politicians have been frustrated because they can't get out of the fix that they have created for themselves? 
or it can be a, a confusion of their world and life view. One of the things that really encouraged my faith was when I did my PhD work and I was uh, examining all of the different philosophies, Western, I didn't so much deal with the philosophies in China, but the, the, the Western philosophies, and I began to realize every one of these is so full of holes, it's easy to knock them down. And it makes sense, the further from the God of truth you get, the more inconsistencies, the more holes, and the more rotten foundations are going to be out there. We have nothing to fear from the people out there. It's going to be full of confusion. And we can praise God for that confusion. Now, if you're writing down subpoints for Roman numeral one, uh, we've just looked at fear that God has sent into their hearts, confusion that He sends to them. The, the next phrase gives the third subpoint. It says, "And will make all your enemies turn their backs to you." Humanism is self-defeating in that it is unable to stand up against a vibrant Christianity. Now, of course, that assumes that the church is going to be in a better condition than it is right now. Uh, we're more like that first generation of Israelites who went to the land of Canaan, and we came up with all of these Murphy's Laws as to why we can't enter into the land of Canaan. You know, the giants are so big, and we're like grasshoppers, and it's full of snares, and it's going to consume us. And all they could do is put their faith in Murphy's Laws instead of putting their faith in God's laws. And so th there's a sense in which we have got to be uh, working on the reformation of the church. I'm far more concerned about reforming the church than I am of getting a Christian president into government. You know, a Christian president's not going to save America, okay? Uh, God is the only one who's going to do it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in politics. Obviously, you know I'm involved in politics, very much so. But here's the thing. If the church could be brought to reformation, brought to faith, where they have faith in God's grace, embrace God's laws by faith, humanism would not be able to stand up to it. It would not. It could not compete. And um, anyway, there is uh, many ways in which God has caused uh, the enemies of the church to turn their backs to the church and succumb. Uh, just take a look at the greatest empire that ever existed, the empire of Rome. Before, I mean, while they were being persecuted, the Apostle Paul in Romans says, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Okay? And he did. It's, it's remarkable. You read those early church fathers and their incredible faith, they, they just sound like... You know, read Athanasius. He sounds like a post-millennial reconstructionist. And he says, man, these, none of these demons can stand up to us. You know, we come after them and they have to flee. They had an incredibly militant approach to life. And you saw country after country finally crying uncle and declaring themselves to be Christian nations. It was because the early church had a, a faith that the modern church lacks. And so this is really, I think, a, 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 a critical area that we need to be involved in uh, we need to be bringing reformation to the church of Jesus Christ. Anyway, verse 27, a whole bunch of things to be thankful for. Let's move on to uh, uh, verse 28. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. Now, I call this God's providence against humanism. God's providence against humanism, because... All of these natural things and these natural laws uh, actually aren't so natural because natural implies neutral. Uh, they're really God's laws. They're God's nature. They're God's 
uh, creatures who all obey his will, and he's using all of these things to slow down and check humanism. Read Deuteronomy 28 sometime, and you will discover that in that chapter in 29, and actually there's so many other chapters, it's not just things like bugs. You see diseases, earthquakes, uh, famines, all kinds of things that God is using to put a check on humanism. It's his providence governing everything. Now, we do need to balance this with point four, and that is that God has his perfect timing. It's not like you can predict an exact cause and effect. It's more of the big picture approach. God has his perfect timing. He's going to bring his judgments at the time that's going to be most conducive to advancing the church of Jesus Christ. And sometimes he has to allow those things to beat up on us for a while first. But uh, anyway, um, uh, let me just give you some examples of providence against humanism. I don't think I have to explain very much in depth for you to understand why it is that homosexuals are not going to live very long. They're killing each other off with disease. I don't need to explain very long why it is that uh, a lot of the humanists out there, because they believe in abortion, are killing off their future. Now, if it was not for the fact that Christians were sending voluntarily letting humanists recruit their kids by sending them to the recruitment centers, which is the government schools, we would have nothing whatsoever to worry about with humanism in America. They don't have a leg to stand on. I don't think I have to explain very much why our sexually permissive, promiscuous society, if you look at the statistics, are becoming, very fast, becoming infertile. They cannot have any children. They're killing themselves off. Okay? I don't have to explain uh, very much why it is that our self-indulgent uh, 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 culture uh, is uh, so self-absorbed that it's going to destroy itself economically, and only those who have followed God's biblical laws are going to be able to survive. I mean, it just makes, it just makes sense. Larry Burkett and, and Gary North and so many other people have been warning about the the, uh, the, you know, the economic earthquake is, I think, the way that Larry Burkett uh, worded it. Now, point four shows that God allows even economic catastrophes to happen at the most opportune time. So when he postpones it, he's postponing the inevitable because he wants the perfect timing for the advancement of his kingdom. Everything's strategic uh, for the Lord. So don't um, think you can immediately predict it. But back to this passage, it's talking about bugs. Bugs. Can even bugs work together for your good? And the scripture says, absolutely yes, because he says, I'm sending the hornets to knock those Canaanites and those Hivites out of the land. Now, here's the question. If those hornets are going to chase, and by the way, that's a hornet's nest that's in your, in your outlines there. But if the hornets are going to drive the Canaanites out, why don't they drive the Israelites out? That's what I always wondered when I was a kid. Why would I want to be following these guys who are fleeing? Aren't the hornets going to come after us as well? It's because God controls the hornets as well, right? God is in control of even the bugs of the land. And R.J. Rushdoony did a fascinating study of numerous plagues, like the Black Plague, for example, and he showed how the same patterns that you see in the Scripture are patterns that have been happening all down uh, through history in putting humanism in check. 
Uh, he cited studies of when earthquakes and famines and other catastrophes happen. And he said, look, it's maybe not year by year, but in terms of the 50-year periods, these general patterns, you can see an absolute correlation between righteousness and evil and rebellion. And God tends to judge nations that already have more light and they're falling away, tends to judge them more. But remarkable study. Now, it, it reminded me uh, on Saturday, hey, there's a book out there that I, I, I forgot to buy, but there's a book that apparently has spent decades tracing all of this providence against humanism and showing that God is alive. He is well. He is gov- governing by his providence all things uh, with, a, with, a, uh, w- with a purpose. Now, does that mean um, that we can abandon people when they are afflicted with AIDS? And I would say, oh, no, absolutely not. That's misinterpreting that. Does it mean that we do not have compassion on those who are hit by earthquakes? And again, I say no. The historian Chadwick, and I think I've mentioned him two or three times to you, but he has pointed out, documented, that the early churches in the first 400 years, the primary reason from a human perspective for the church's growth was that Christians were right there ministering to those when God brought judgment. So when there was a plague brought, uh, was it God's judgment? We'd say, yes, it was. Christians were there on the forefront ministering, and hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ as a result of their ministry. So anyway, we can be thankful that God's providence conspires together with His grace to move forward the Great Commission. Third, verse 29 gives another reason we can be thankful. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. What he's saying here is that these pagans served a purpose. They tilled the land. They kept the beasts in check. They planted vineyards and olive groves that later on the Israelites were going to inherit. And this is exactly what the Scripture says. It says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. You trace the first thousand years of church history and look at the finances. Where is the flow of money? It is unbelievable the vast sums of money that were flowing into the church. What was going on there? It was the wealth of the wicked was being laid up for the righteous. These guys who had, were using their millions of dollars to, to, to promote humanism, they were getting converted, and all of a sudden they were directing all of that money for the extension of Christ's kingdom. It's a fascinating study. Just trace the money in the first thousand years, and you will see that this is exactly what God was doing. Um, there are other ways. Uh, Roman roads were used by the humanists to try to hold their empire together, right? They didn't have good intentions. They were using this to promote humanism. What does God do? He uses those same Roman roads uh, as a vehicle for spreading missions. And he used the safety of Roman ships, you know, because they got rid of all of the pirates. It was much easier for for us to be missionaries. And uh, so there was um, universal language, universal coinage, universal court system, and there were a whole bunch of other things that Rome was using for Rome And God was saying, yeah, I think I'm going to turn that around and I'm going to use it to convert Rome. Um, Same is true today. The Internet is being used by pornography. Pornographers and other criminal activities nurse people who really want to shut down the Internet. 
And it's really actually a wrong approach. I probably shouldn't get into that. But you can ask me some time on what's the right approach for dealing with pornography. It's a scourge on our nation. But the approach is not to give the federal government, which has caused the problem in the first place by allowing the pornographers, it's not to let the government monitor your computers. I shouldn't get on this rabbit trail, but it just grieves me, you know, when I see the government's always the solution to the very problems that the government's created. Forget that. Um, but anyway, what was I going to say? Yeah, okay, the Internet. It's being used by the humanists, but it's an incredible tool. Sometimes it's the only tool that we have for getting the gospel into nations that are totally closed to missions. So the very things that Satan is using, we can say, thank you, Lord. These guys have invented a pretty cool thing. We're going to use this for the advancement uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God may convert some of these people in media and financial power. And I guess the point here is God causes, how does he word it? The wrath of man to praise him. The wrath of man to praise him. God's using Obama right now to wake up the church. So it's not something to be discouraged over. It's something to thank him for. Which brings us to his timetable for conquest. Verse 30. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Now, Christians are always looking for the easy, quick solution. They want instant sanctification. They want instant victory in politics. They want instant kingdom, instant church growth. And when it doesn't happen, they're just, nothing's working out, you know, and they start believing Murphy's Laws. And God said, that's not the way I work anyway. That's not the way I work. God has chosen to use the gradual growth process down through history with occasional quick spurts, but it's a gradual plotting. It's sort of like the Cornhuskers. You know, we wear them out and win in the fourth quarter. After yesterday, that was very mean. <laughs> uh, what a terrible game, but... Uh, <laughs> But I think you get the point. Uh, in the past, they've had that reputation. You just wear them down, wear them down, and they just, we just cream them in the fourth quarter. That's what's going to happen according to God's plan for planet Earth. And really, it's a good thing that God works slowly. It gives us time to be prepared. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if God handed over the reins of government in America to Christians right now? Man, we'd have all kinds of Huckabees in there doing incredible damage. Uh, I mean, the guy's got a good heart, but he's clueless worldwide, uh, wor worldview-wise, absolutely clueless. Right now, he's been uh, defending Mrs. Obama, you know, and saying, yeah, the federal government needs to be involved in stopping, uh, stopping obesity. And so we'd have all kinds of Christians getting in there. Look at the, 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 the voting record of Christians in Congress and the Senate. There are some in there that are really good. But it is abominable. It's abominable. They're part of the problem, not part of the solution, because they don't have the right knowledge, the right understanding of that knowledge, and the right wisdom to be able to apply it in culture. So what we need is Daniels who understand the Scriptures, know how to apply the Scriptures in culture, and they can have a tremendous, tremendous influence. Uh, anyway, Israel was uh, not going to inherit the land right away, and God said it would not be in your best interests if you did. Everything would go bad. He said, I'm going to let you inherit it little by little as you prove yourselves, as you gain the ability to take dominion of the land. And so until you, that's why we're trying to encourage you guys, get a good worldview, prepare yourselves. You may be those Daniels, Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes 
in the future. Okay, let's take a look at verse 31. This is yet another reason to be thankful, and that is that our dominion is bounded. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Boundaries. What, what did that mean to Israel? Well, there's three subpoints here. Limitation, protection, and challenge. First of all, limitation. You read through Deuteronomy 2 through 3, and you will see there were a number of countries. God says, don't meddle with that country. Don't meddle with that country. I've not given that country to you. I'll just read you one example. He said, when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. And he said the same for other nations. We all need boundaries, even unfallen man needed boundaries. Adam and Eve were given the boundary. You can eat from any tree that's out there. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a boundary. Every time God gives a law, those are boundaries. And what was Adam's temptation? To be as God. Okay? We don't want these creaturely boundaries that are inhibiting us. Our will kind of bucks against that. And God says, no, this is the very thing you need to be submitting to is the fact that there are always going to be boundaries in your life. So when we break God's laws, we're breaking boundaries. God has set boundaries for individuals, for families, for churches, for governments. You know, when the American government is meddling in all of these countries all over the world, they're overstepping their boundaries. Now, you may disagree with that, but I think every one of you would agree there are limits to what a civil government can do. There are limits to what an individual can do. If an individual like Isaiah comes in and he starts doing the work of the church that's only in the boundary of a church, God will judge. When a church starts doing, overstepping its boundaries and trying to do what God instructs a family to do, like I saw one pastor lining up the kids and giving them the paddle, and uh, boy, did he get a rebuke from me. So that is not your jurisdiction. We get ourselves into trouble. These boundaries are critical to understand. Okay, so there's limitations. Secondly, there is the purpose of protection. God had only given Israel sufficient grace to conquer, maintain, and defend a certain territory. Now, when later kings became greedy and they started overstepping that, oh, it was absolutely disastrous, disastrous. Uh, one of the expressions that's been around for a couple of decades is pushing the margins. And you probably understand what that is. It's uh, writing on a page like I do with tiny margins. No, I, people have taught me you don't do that. You have to have big margins. Uh, looks nice, there's some space. Now, they use that as an illustration for our lives. He says, if your life does not have margins, if it's so crammed full that you can't fit anything more on the page, what you're doing is you are trying to push out your creaturely limits and you're going to get yourself into trouble. Because the first little disaster that comes in, pressure that comes in, it's going to blow you out of the water because you can't fit anything more into your life. So what gives? Okay, I guess I can't sleep. And so your sleep gives. Well, sleep is a creaturely limit as well. It's a boundary. And when you don't sleep for a while, you sure feel it. You feel awful, right? And so God has put these here for our protection as saying, don't act like God. 
You need to rejoice in the fact you're the creature, he's the creator, you have to trust him for many things, and you are going to live within your boundaries. But thirdly, and primarily, I think boundaries are a challenge. We rarely live up to the boundaries. Usually I don't have to tell people, you're really pushing the margins. Usually I have to work with people because they're wasting their time. They're, in Numbers chapter 32, God got on Israel's case because they did not want to take the full measure of the boundaries that God had given to them. They, they, they were spouting Murphy's loss. We can't do that. That's impossible. And, and God says, no, you have got to fully strive for the boundaries I have given to you. Every time that the Canaanites seemed to be too strong, Israelites were quite content to restrict their boundaries. Well, I see the church doing the same thing today, and we need the same challenge. What are the boundaries that God has given to the church today? Now, obviously, there's boundaries of the law that they're ignoring, and there's boundaries of creaturehood that sometimes we ignore. But I'm just talking right now about the boundaries in terms of, uh, of the, in, the incredible faith challenge that God's put before us. Is it to conquer just a little piece of, of the world? The Great Commission's boundaries are that we are to disciple every nation. It, it, it's a worldwide thing. Now, obviously, every church can't take on the whole world. That's why we start with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts uh, of the earth. But just as in the Old Testament, God did not want even one Canaanite left in the land. God's purpose is that we preach the gospel to every creature. Okay? Now, whether God accomplishes it in our lives uh, or not, that's our goal. We preach the gospel to every creature. And when will the end of the age come? Well, there's a lot of passages that speak about this, but 1 Corinthians 15 is quite clear. It says, he must reign. So it talks about him sitting right now at the right hand of the Father. He's on his throne. And it says, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And you keep reading and you realize the last enemy is destroyed when we're caught up to meet him in the air as he's coming back, which implies every other enemy is destroyed before death is destroyed. What is Christ doing right now? Paul said, he is working through us as his ambassadors, reconciling the world to God. Okay, so many people say that's impossible. We're, we're, we're spouting Murphy's laws. We can't do that until Christ is physically present. Well, Christ didn't promise his physical presence to accomplish the Great Commission. He promised his spiritual presence. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So again, constantly we've got this conflict between faith and Murphy's laws. Well, they're both a type of faith. And we've got to be having faith in God's promises rather than in a humanistic alternative. Okay, the sixth thing that we can be thankful for is that we do not need the world's help to take dominion. Now, this is not a contradiction to principle number three. In principle number three, I was saying that God enables us to inherit the things of the Canaanites. But that does not, taking, plundering the Canaanites does not give us the excuse of adopting the Canaanites' worldview. That's not plundering the Canaanites. Or, um, what are some of the other things that we, we do with the, with the Canaanites uh, of, um, 
you know, taking on, sending our kids to their government schools or in any way compromising with them. We've got to distinguish between some of the things like iPods and iPads and stuff like that that we can use and adopting their worldview. Here's um, what verse 32 says. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. Now, covenants alliances, uh, compromise, negotiations with humanists. Uh, These are all the kinds of things that we're tempted to do when we believe Murphy's Laws because we think, well, the alternative is not possible, so the only way we're going to be able to achieve this is through compromise. I mean, this was the temptation of Abraham, wasn't it? And, And Sarah. Well, we want God's goals, but it's kind of unrealistic to do it God's way. Let's figure out a way of raising up a seed, and what happens? Ishmael gets produced. These types of things flow from, from uh, Murphy's laws. Faith cannot compromise. Here's what George Grant said. But it is dominion we are after, not just a voice. It is dominion we are after, not just influence. It is dominion we are after, not just equal time. It is dominion we are after, world conquest. That's what Christ has commissioned us to accomplish. We must win the world with the power of the gospel, and we must never settle for anything less. And so while this is a rebuke for Christians who synthesize Christianity together with the world, instead of just sticking with Christianity, it's also an encouragement. We do not need the wisdom of the world to take over the world. What does Second Peter chapter 1 say? He's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say? He's given us everything we need in the Scriptures to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's what Deuteronomy tells us in Deuteronomy 32. He said, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land, which you cross over the Jordan to possess. So we can be thankful. We really don't need the wisdom of the world. We've got the wisdom of Christ, which makes the wisdom of the world look foolish. One more reason to be thankful, and that's in verse 33. God promises, I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Christ gave a similar promise. He said, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. It's a promise. Uh, But it's a promise that's given with a condition of faithfulness to him. So verse 33 says, They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And Christ gave the same condition. He didn't say that we're going to automatically inherit the earth. He said the meek shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? It is not weakness. Meekness is strength in total submission. In fact, it's a word that's translated as tamed. It talks about tamed animals, tamed stallions. Strong, strong animal that's totally using its strength in the service of the master. So when the church is out and out in submission to the Lord, we will have the victory. 
But when we're not, God's not going to automatically grant the victory uh, to us. And so we might uh, think, well, we're doing pretty good in America. You know, we don't kill people. We don't do a whole lot of things. But actually, the fact of the matter is that we are filled with idolatry. Uh, one of the things that, <clears throat> that years ago we uh, went through uh, as elders was Oz Guinness's book, and I don't even remember the title of it right now, but it was an amazing uh, book showing how rife the church of Jesus Christ is with idolatry. We have idolatrized political parties. We have idolatrized rights. We have idolatrized victimization and psychology and church growth and so many different things. And basically, they pointed out we're whoring after the spirit of this age. Now, there's another book that I found even more convicting, and it was uh, Herbert Schlossberg's Idols for Destruction. I think it's one of the most magnificent critiques of the 20th century America that I've ever read. And there's quite a number of other people who have said the same thing. But let's bring it down to the common level. I think our subjective response to the news, you know, you listen to the news, you read the news. Actually, we don't listen to the news anymore. It uh, makes me start thinking Murphy's Laws all over again. <laughs> uh, I, I go on the Internet for my news, but... Here's how you can evaluate whether you're trusting in something in place of God when you are reading the news. Many times we are sad, discouraged, and ready to give up because our idols have failed us. For example, we have worked so hard to get a president in to appoint a Supreme Court justice, and the Supreme Court justice comes in and he lets us down. I mean, after all the compromises we have made to get him into the Supreme Court and he's disappointing us, what is with that? You know, or we'd hoped that Ronald Reagan, you know, could bring in a land of milk and honey, or we'd hoped that the contract with America that Newt Gingrich gave, you know, would save our country. No, it hasn't worked. And now I'm not saying that God cannot use presidents or justices. We're involved in politics, but I am saying they are not your savior. God is. Jesus alone is. I have no illusion that a conservative president will save America. He will not. Now, on the other hand, I in no way want to minimize the incredible impact that a Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego can have in politics. So I'm so thankful for the Blackburns and for others who are involved in pro politics. We need to be salt and light. We need to be out there. And uh, I don't want to in any way minimize uh, the, the, the good that Christian politicians can have in Washington. But our trust must be in the Lord. The meek shall inherit the earth. Ultimately, it's God and God alone who can make the difference in the hearts of Americans. So even though we must use means, our trust has to be in God, not in the means themselves. Does that make sense? It's got to be in God, not in the means. Now, when we realize that all God calls us to is faithfulness to Him, and we've got every reason in the world to thank him that the meek will inherit the earth. From beginning to end, this passage shows that the work of conquest is God's. And it's only going to succeed as we are in touch with God, submitted to him. Same is true, the increase of Christ's kingdom. And I want you to listen to the last phrase of the passage I'm going to read for, uh, for you from Isaiah 8. Begins at Christ's birth and takes us through, you know, this whole... A period of time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, 
and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What an incredible promise. The zeal, I love that word, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The battle belongs to the Lord. And when you start to be tempted to affirm Murphy's laws and to grumble and to assume that everything's working together for your bad, then rebuke yourself and say, self, cut it out. I retract that Murphy's law that I just let slip out of my mouth. I refuse to believe that Murphy's law instead I am laying claim to these seven incredible promises and actually hundreds of promises more in the Scripture. I want to live by faith because without faith it is impossible to please God. Now, it's hard to live by faith because everything in life seems like Murphy's loss. Why? Because all of those people are living unfaithfully too. Look at people of faith like George Mueller. Uh, Get your vision into the scriptures and into people who are living by faith rather than by Murphy's laws, and it will start to encourage you to walk in faith as well. And when you begin to live by faith like that, God will begin to show you the very antithesis of Murphy's law, and you're going to begin to see everything in life conspiring together for your good. Please, brothers and sisters, live by faith and be a thankful people. Amen. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that the victory belongs to you. It is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that anything of good is going to be accomplished in this world. But Father, where your spirit is working through us, anything can be accomplished. And we believe that and we rejoice in that. Uh, Where we affirm with Jesus that without him we can do nothing. Yet we also affirm through the same words uh, that Jesus gave to Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, help us to live by faith to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.